Facebook, if you've never been on it, you've dodged a bullet. Let me just say that. But is like a virtual bulletin board with access to profiles, different people's bulletin boards, if you will. People post things. Other people can comment. You can go to different people's profiles and see just what that one person posts. Or Facebook has been smart enough to put all of your friends' profiles and contacts into one bulletin board for you. So it's like you're reading the news from all your friends. And back around 2010, I had been friends through Facebook with this gal named Christy Puckett. Maybe you've heard of her. Uh, uh, Of course, I knew her even before through school. She was two grades ahead of me. Her brother married a gal from the church I was attending, Valley View Nazarene. So Christy would show up at Valley View Nazarene for baby dedications of nieces and uh, eventually nephews. And her sister-in-law still leads to this day music at Valley View Nazarene. And sometimes Christy would come and help babysit a few kids while... Corey was busy at music practice. And for whatever reason, around 2010, Christy started commenting more on my posts on Facebook, and I started commenting more on her posts. Facebook has this chat feature built into it. So if you're on Facebook on the website, and a contact of yours happens to be on Facebook at the same time, you two can chat. And Facebook lets you know when contacts are online or offline. Ever so often, I'd see Christy was online, and so we began chatting on Facebook. (laughs) Well, I worked at the grocery store Tuesday and Thursday nights from about 6 o'clock to to midnight. And sometimes when I got home from work, I'd say to myself, I'd like to chat with Christy, but of course she'd be sleeping. So Facebook has this feature that you could leave chats for them to see when they got on. So I partook in this ancient form of communication where you write letters or emails, only it was on Facebook, and then she'd write back here and there when she got a chance. Well, finally that wasn't enough. We had been uh, posting stuff on each other's Facebook profiles, chatting, writing emails, I just got to meet this gal. And so uh, she'd come back home here to Woodland pretty much every weekend. Some of you know that because you'd see her here at the church. And I conveniently, almost as if it was on purpose, found a reason why I needed to be in Lewiston on a Friday, which oddly enough was the same day she'd be going through Lewiston. And we both mentioned Starbucks and a love for coffee. If only uh, we could meet for coffee. So we did. Early May 2010. And before long, we had each other's phone numbers. We could, yeah, we could text. She had to improve her phone plan after a very large phone bill. And we kept chatting. Yeah, and there is this, you're like, get it over with. So there is this euphoria of knowing that happens, right? We call it love, falling in love, smitten, a crush. But if you think about it logically, I know such a man trying to logic out love. Isn't it interesting that so much pleasure, joy, warmth, and happiness comes from what? Wanting to be with and wanting to know another person. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Even though I'm a man, and hormones were involved for the both of us, it wasn't self-serving, in a sense, 
but selfless. What? <laughs> okay. So I found a reason to use gas, drive to Lewiston, take some time from anything else, and apply it to the cause of knowing Christy more. We were in that coffee room for over an hour. Christy did most of the talking. We were both kind of nervous. But suddenly I found myself willing to sacrifice meeting with other people, doing other things, or having other blocks of my schedule because I wanted to know her. And Paul in our passage today is going to show us that same sort of love and desire mirrors the sort of love that compels a man to lose it all for the sake of knowing what? Knowing Christ. Let's take a look together at Philippians 3, 1 through 8. There's a lot here and a lot later in Philippians 3, so that's why I'm breaking it up. But Philippians 3, 1 through 8, I invite you to stand if you're able and let's hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those workers of evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself could have such confidence. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the the church, as to righteousness in the law, faultless. But whatever gain to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's such a, at least for me and probably for many in the church, such a familiar passage of Scripture. And it's easy to think we know familiar passages of Scripture, so let's move on. But I pray that you would unpack this text for us. That your Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul to write these words, would now speak to us, open our hearts and minds to receive your word, to grow in our faith, and most of all, to grow in our love and knowledge of you. Because we do want to know you. We are seekers of your heart. So have your way. Say what it is you desire. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Since I've already been talking about Christy and me, a few years ago, Christy and some other secret funders surprised me. They bought me a ticket to Georgia. No, it wasn't because they wanted me gone. They made sure it was a return ticket. But I had a family uh, reunion on my dad's side of the family happening. And I hadn't seen many of them for years, so I got to go. It was great. Came time to fly home. And at the time, my brother Jeremy lived about an hour and a half outside of Atlanta. So he's taking me, I think, really to the furthest stop for the railway, the the train cars that ride above and throughout the Atlanta metropolitan area. It stops at the terminal at the airport. So at dark 30, dark 030, he drops me off. 
He says, about a half hour, you'll be at the airport, just get off there. So I get to the airport. It's literally an hour before my plane is leaving the airport. I get through security, and I know then and there I'm not going to make it. I get to security, I should say, not through security. Plus, the Atlanta airport is huge in scope. It has its own system of subways, so you can just get to different concourses. So after security, I'm sure I had to take that system to get to my concourse. I get to the gate to literally see the plane that I'm supposed to be flying out of, still parked, but the clerk is telling me that the almighty, unapproachable door has been closed. No one is allowed at once the holy door is latched. So after huffing and puffing, and what do I do? I call my brother. He he came back to that transit stop. I got back on the railway and found what Atlanta people drive the railway around 8 or 9 o'clock, and they looked a little bit more scarier than the ones at 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock. And uh, to kind of cheer me up, my brother, I, he, my parents were in Georgia too, and he had already planned to be taking them to an Atlanta Braves game. And he says, I'll even pay for your ticket. Let's just go to a Braves game. You can fly out Thursday. This was a Tuesday. So Wednesday, we went to an Atlanta Braves game. I missed my... Um, so on Thursday, I assured my brother, hey, drive us all, because now my parents were flying out. Drive us all to the airport. Just, just all the way there. And so he did. But the Braves game was a big event. I was sad that I wasn't going to see Christy, and we just had Calvin at the time, but I got to see a Braves game. Why do I bring all this up? The, the beginning of Philippians 3.1 says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And we've been calling this series Unrelenting Joy because it seems evident that Paul has a consistent theme of joy throughout this letter. And he says, finally here, followed by a repetition of that theme. And then Bible scholars scratch their heads and say, did he mean to finish here? Is the rest added by another one of Paul's letters? Or it seems the more likely theory is he thought he was done, but then he remembered more to add. And the stuff he does add, I think personally, is some of the most significant, powerful parts of Philippians. And I'm not overlooking Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, that's pretty climactic, but there's a section in chapter 4 that has statistically been proven to be some of the most well-treasured passages in the Bible about not being anxious about anything. It says a lot about us as a people. And I think it's because Paul listened to the Holy Spirit and decided, no, wait, I'm not done. I have more to say here. Right? And the proverbial Braves game happened. So, the reason he's not done is Paul calls to mind a sober warning. We see this in the remainder of verse 1, heading into verse 2. It is no trouble for me uh, to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. No trouble to write the same things again. Could be that Paul had a letter now lost to us that the Philippians had beforehand, or it's also just as likely he's about to touch on things here in this letter that he's spoken to them face-to-face about before. And before we head into what he's going to say, I'll just spill the beans. It's the same stuff he addresses in the book of Galatians. It's the same stuff that the church council back in Acts 15 handled. And chronologically speaking, we are now in what some Christians have called the unwritten chapter of Acts 29. That is just life after Acts 28. 
And in Paul, where Paul is at Rome, he arrived there in chapter 28. Now he's writing a, a letter to the Philippians. In years, if the Acts 15 council happened between Paul's first and second missionary journey, as Acts seems to convey, that council happened probably around 49 AD. Paul's Roman house arrest in Rome is thought to be around 60 to 62 AD. So thus around the time Paul is writing Philippi. So about a 10 to 15 years difference of the events of the council and what Paul is writing here. You and I both know that destructive heresies and theological controversies sadly can stick around a long time. And because they do, Christians need to be just as up to the task of repeating what we know to be true As Paul says here, I know you've heard this before, but it's for good reason. It's safeguard. Well, I didn't know anyone long enough to see it myself, but in the yearly meeting split of our denomination over the reasons it did, namely for reasons of biblical authority concerning what the Bible says about sexuality outside of heterosexual married love, traditional marriage, there were people whom others witnessed the changing of their minds over a long period of time. Which is sad. They believed what the Bible said. They were convinced of what it wasn't saying. So it's necessary, says Paul, to safeguard or to be reminded time after time. Here's why you don't need to be more Jewish to be a better Christian, is what it amounts to. And Paul, as we will dive into here in a few minutes, he doesn't speak from a place of unfamiliarity regarding uh, Jewishness, when he immediately rises to such a biting attack, he says in verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those workers of evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Almost 15 years since the church council, notwithstanding the years it was likely building up for the need of that council, but Paul seems to have lost no zeal, No defensive passion as far as this is concerned. I think some of us have those causes and the frustrations get tiresome and the passion wanes. But Paul sees this issue as a central issue, a dire threat against the gospel. He calls such people dogs, and for Jews, they consider dogs about as welcome, pleasant, and nice as rodents. Dogs were just big rats as far as they were concerned. Scavengers, they were not a man's best friend. You know, if they could make dog traps as we make mice traps, they probably would have. Dogs had been terms used by Jews for Gentiles. And so the irony is that Paul is now using it for Judaizers, that is, Jewish and Gentile self-professing Christians who push adherence to the entirety of the Jewish law if you want to be a good Christian. Often this is generalized down to circumcision the sign of the law. And Paul says these are dogs and workers of evil. Again, strong words. Paul is not loosening and lightening his judgment of such persons. He's not saying, well, they've been around for some time and I could learn to live with them. No, they're workers of evil. Jesus had not much nicer things to say about such hypocritical, self-righteous, law-loving Jews. 
Jesus says in Matthew 23, 15, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You traverse land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. And Paul actually curses them in Galatians. He says, let such teachers be under a curse. Galatians 1.8. A sober warning. Paul also says they are mutilators of the flesh. And he's saying this about teachers who, among other things, command circumcision, the mark of the Jewish covenant of God's people. Christian teachers who told their male converts, you need to do this to be saved by our Messiah. And Paul is turning such a command on its head, saying the way you're demanding it is nothing more than what pagan false god worshippers do when they command cutting and mutilating and sacrificing to appease their gods. Yahweh is not so concerned with a simple snip of some flesh as if that's going to be the one thing that saves you people, right? Circumcision had come to a spot for these people that had no intrinsic spiritual value. Let me put it to you this way. Christians are not encouraged to read their Bibles because it's the right thing to do. Or so you can check a checkbox that you did it. Or because the pages are special. Or because the ink is special. Or so that you can feel good about yourself. None of these things are the point. Paul even says in in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, the natural man, referring to a man unengaged in spiritual matters, not in tune with the Spirit of God, not saved or redeemed. He says, the natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You know what this means? Reading the Bible, listening to godly teaching and preaching, is of no value so long as he's not spiritually discerning them. My point is, and my connection is, is that If the Judaizing teachers, those who taught the acceptance of Christ, plus keeping the Jewish law, equals salvation, they have absolutely no clue what the gospel was or is. Such persons are still around today. By virtue of how they calculated salvation, salvation is never Jesus plus. It's just Jesus saves. Paul says it clearly in Galatians 5.6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. All that matters is faith expressed through love. That's the sober warning. But now, more clearly expressed, Paul communicates the point here. In verse 3, he says, For it is we who are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul has labeled the opponents to the gospel in Jewish derogatory terms. He called them dogs, flesh mutilators. But then now Paul has accepted for himself and for the Christian the mark of the covenant He repurposes that term and says, for it is we who are the circumcision. Dare I ask a raise of hands, but how many of you do read your Bibles? (laughs) I was 
Re- Thanks for raising your hand. I was uh, recently in Deuteronomy. And all the way back then, Moses was saying, circumcise your hearts. Right? Deuteronomy 10.16. Or in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. See, the spiritual implications of what circumcision was about were present back in the time of Moses. And in fact, this, this very, the spiritual implications, the meaning of the symbolism was what always was present and indeed was what always was most important the entire time of the Old Covenant. That's what was most important. What are the spiritual implications of why we are doing what we're doing? It wasn't about the animals, the blood, the spattering this way, sprinkling that way, the temple. It was never about these things, period. It was about the meaning they symbolized. That was always the most important part. It's why you have prophets like Samuel saying to King Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience to His voice? Behold, obedience is better than sacrifice. And attentiveness, the ESV says, to listen is better than the fat of rams. Or David, also a contemporary of Samuel, perhaps repeating what was taught to him by Samuel, he says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the circumcision, the cutting off of such a sensitive place is is a token, a sign of saying we are to be a cut off people from the land. We're different. Peculiar, particularly chosen, consecrated for the Lord. And as early as Moses, he was saying our hearts, our wills, our affections, the source of who we are and what we do shall one day be circumcised for the Lord. Cut off, set apart, consecrated for the Lord. That is the greater meaning and that is the substantive meaning of circumcision. And that's the point, said Paul. We are the circumcision. Because Judaizing teachers are worried about, oh, it's about cutting the skin, keeping these feasts, properly pronouncing the Hebrew. And Paul is saying, it's about worship. By the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. It sounds like another conversation I recall where Jesus said, A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, that is in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem. Right? Jesus is saying it's not about the mountain. What's the right mountain? Or getting our physical ducks in the right rows so that our God will be pleased with us. Rather, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such as these to worship Him. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's the point, Paul is saying. It's such a a sober threat, what the Judaizers want, because it threatens to rob glory from Christ. And that is a profound sin. A sin from the pit of hell. I mean, Paul defines sin this way, does he not? All have sinned and what? fall short 
of the glory of God. And that conjunction, and in the Greek, also works as the idea of namely or even, which means Paul could be saying, all have sinned. Namely, they fall short of the glory of God. The gospel is greater, and the gospel means there's no room for the right mountain, and you need circumcised, and you need your ducks in a row. No, the point is simply this. Put no confidence in the flesh. You can't do anything to impress God. You're not going to compel Him to save you. But I was circumcised and God thunders back, but I was crucified. Wasn't that enough? No confidence in the flesh means finding no confidence from one's heritage, morality, or deeds. And that's what Paul really says here in verses 4-6. through six. He says, Though I myself could have such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, as to righteousness in the law, faultless. You know, I'm, I'm humbled every time I study because I, I learn things that I think I should have known a long time ago, such as, While Christ was sinless and He fulfilled the law, we have this other example in Paul. He was probably the most humanly close that any of us could get. He had all the marks of what was required to be on the track towards salvation. We have two examples. Sinlessness and somebody trying really hard to be sinless. The confidence Paul could have had, again, comes down to heritage, morality, and deeds. Heritage, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, we should first note that Paul is laying out his reasons for confidence in the flesh because they are outstanding for his day. Not every Jew was as devout as a Pharisee like Paul is. Nor talking about, uh, nor did everyone have parents that positioned Paul where he was. That was beyond everybody's control. His parents devoutly followed the law and had him circumcised on the eighth day. We know this in Luke 2 with Jesus' parents. Mary found favor with God. Paul, or excuse me, Joseph was a righteous man. They made sure he got to be circumcised on the eighth day, presented at the temple. But my point is, is that by and large, it's not like this was the norm for every Jew, or even what we might call practicing Jew. It's not too hard to believe, but how many self-professing believers and Christians are in the world doing things right now that make other Christians scoff and say, really, you say you're a Christian? Many Jews might get their kids circumcised when they got around to it. They might make it to the Passover feast because the last time we made it was four years ago. Uh, I'm Jewish because I was born near Israel for what tribe I couldn't tell you, couldn't care either. Paul is saying he came from a proud Jewish family, knows his ancestry. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, the second beloved son of Jacob, the brother of Joseph. I was named for King Saul, who also came from Benjamin. Some say this term, Hebrew of Hebrews, meant that though he was from Tarsus, you knew that, Saul of Tarsus, which is in present-day Turkey, he may have spoken the national language of the Jews at the time, which was, nope, Aramaic actually. The rest of those in Tarsus spoke Greek. So Paul is saying, I was raised in a house that valued and practiced our Jewish tradition. Heritage. 
Do you think heritage might save you? Me, I, Kevin Davis, I was born in a Christian home. I knew the Bible from a young age. I went to church every week from a young age. I memorized scripture. I knew Christian songs. I could answer biblical questions. But never should I let these things take the place of what the reality should be. A real, true, living relationship with God through Christ and Spirit and truth. Heritage doesn't save and should give no confidence in the flesh. Others might take confidence from the flesh, from their morality. Paul said he had an impeccable record here too, because as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, we're 2,000 years into a history that has made the Pharisees the antagonists of the New Testament, but there was a reason Christ shocked people every time he criticized them. Because the Pharisees were the superheroes. Many believe that that Pharisees rose out of the centuries leading up to the time of Jesus as a holiness movement, that's my movement, the Nazarenes, saying, hey, we're tired of being captured and conquered every so often. It's because we're not abiding, abiding by the law Yahweh set out for us. So let's do so. And so they set out to be the most holiest, most devout, most accurately discerning and interpreting Jews ever. Pharisees means separated a visible, powerful, intentional attempt to be set apart, to be that set-apart nation that God was calling His people to. And they made traditions around the laws. They defined the laws well. Okay, Yahweh said this, that, that. So they made oral and written traditional interpretations from these laws, stipulations from these laws. God said no work on the Sabbath, so that means practically one should not walk more than this set amount of miles. And these activities can constitute as work. No one should do these activities. And Paul is saying, that's me. I knew the law forwards, backwards, inside out. I could tell you who said what about any given law. I could give you the case-by-case records of when we added to, tweaked, or interpreted that way. I can cite chapter, verse, phrase, letter, and because the law meant safety. The law meant salvation. The law meant God's favor. Kevin Davis, I'm a naturally born Pharisee, I am. Grade A student, I'm a baby in the family, and some of you, you know, three out of four times, the the baby is the naturally suited family Pharisee. The youngest. See, I observed all my older siblings where they got in trouble, so I took notes and never got in trouble. I was the the last one who was cute to my parents because I was the baby. As I got older, I had strong convictions. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. And when people do wrong, or when they even think wrong, I'm able to correct them. And I can secretly judge them when they don't take my advice. Morality. It's a confidence in the flesh. But more than just being morally good, Paul says confidence comes about from deeds. Moving on from whom a person claims to be to what they do. Deeds. He says, as to zeal, persecuting the church. As to righteousness in the law, faultless. So, when it comes to confidence in the flesh, Paul is saying he just didn't have an avoidance ethic when it comes to his faith. Right? A lot of outsiders look on religious people who live with restrictions, and sadly, a lot for Christians, they don't do much to dispel this rumor. As in, my faith means I avoid bad things, period. And Paul says, no, my deeds could even be seen to be confidence-giving. I was zealous. 
a zealous Jew like like Moses who told the Levites to strap on their swords and slay the false worshipping faithless Jews in the camp, like like Phineas who killed the Jewish man who brought a Midianite woman into the camp and God commended him for it, like Elijah who showed up those Baal worshipping flesh mutilators and ordered their prophet's execution afterwards. Paul is saying, I was zealous. Paul could say, as to the righteousness in the law, faultless. No doubt due to his study as a Pharisee, but Paul again is saying, if the law said don't do it, I didn't do it. If the law said do it, I did it. And when I sinned, I did what the law told me to do, how to reconcile that sin. Deeds. There's no confidence for the flesh, though. Going to church doesn't save you. Reading the Bible won't save you. Helping people is not going to save you. Money in the offering plate or to the right ministries won't save you. Helping your neighbor out for free won't save you because deeds do not save. And maybe it's because we need to realize for God, it's less about, I don't know, saving and more about existing into the purpose we were made for. It was creation that was broken. It's not God created Adam and Eve for heaven, for a location. But He made Adam and Eve for a relationship. In God's presence. It's why we have the controversial conclusion that Paul makes in verses 7 and 8. He says, But whatever was gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Whatever was gain, I count as loss. Can you do that? It's harder to renounce virtue than vice. While we all know that Christ calls us to quit sinning, what about the times He calls us to deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow Him? Can you deny, Paul, all the status, all the reputation you've made, the up-and-coming Pharisee, the political, powerful figure who's feared among the Christians and celebrated among the Jewish elite? Can you can you let go of the feelings of, of righteousness and being better than everyone? Can you renounce your identity? Sometimes the hardest choices are not between finding the gumption to get off the wrong track of road to get on the right one, but perhaps deciding the harder road when the one that promises desirable goods seems easier, seems more accessible, seems more publicly championed, seems more self-satisfying and self-serving. And when Paul's heritage was working for him, his family, his, his ancestors had ensured that he would be good to go. And when Paul's morality had worked for him in the worldly sense, and really he thought in the religious sense, he had garnered him respect and reverence. And when Paul's deeds had only worked further in his favor, a Pharisee gaining the authority of the, of the high priests, of who was thought to be Yahweh's religion, at the sight of Christ, Paul was willing to lose it all. How? And I got here in my message and I was writing it and I didn't know what to put here. I didn't know how to take verses 7 and 8 and I was hitting a mental block. And and if you are too, I wonder if you and I lose sight of what Christ repeated over and over and over. 
and what John, his beloved disciple, repeated over and over and over. This is Paul's way of saying it. And what Paul is saying is that it's not so much about duty. It's not so much about zeal. It's not about crossing T's and dotting I's because a lot of that stuff will come naturally if what? Jesus says it this way, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here's what I used to think about that passage. Because I'm a Pharisee. Until about yesterday evening when I was writing this. To put it in the worst possible light, Jesus was guilting people with that, right? If you really love me, then obey me. As in, show me you love me by your obedience. But what if Christ is not showing us a prerequisite or a requirement for our love towards Him? What if He's showing us, what if He's not showing us how He grades our love for Him? But what if He is showing us the natural result of loving Him? What if He's saying this, start loving me, and before you know it, you'll be keeping my commandments? you hear the difference in that? And I know that's true because of what? Because when I started dating Christy and my love for Christy, it didn't feel like sacrifice, didn't it? I want to. Sure, while dating her, there were things I could do, and if I was selfish, I could have done besides, and while married to her, there are things I can do and things I'd like to do, but I want to pursue her more. I want to love her. So I choose daily her or my family over my selfish desires, right? Paul is willing to lose it all because in comparison to Christ, in comparison to his pursuit of him, in comparison to who he is, and what he means, and how pleasing and satisfying and enjoying and delightful he is, well, of course I can make time for him. Of course I can make sacrifices because in comparison to him, all that he had going for himself was rubbish. He would rather gain Christ and upon gaining Christ and pursuing Him and loving Him, that is how and when one will keep His commandments, right? What does circumcision or keeping Moses' law have to do with it? Why fret left and right about the right mountain or the feast day or the command when there is Christ and loving Him? And when we start to love Him, we start to obey Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, as a Pharisee, I'm naturally intellectually programmed. And I want to study and I want to figure things out. I want to sort things out. I want everything in the right box. What things do I need to do? And amazingly, we look over the fact, reading your love letter to us, that you called us to love you. Because you are worthy to be loved. Father, many times we know that you made the world. And whenever it sinned and rebelled, you could have been done with it. But instead of throwing us away, you send your son to die in our place for our sins because you love us. Father, if that doesn't move our heart to love you back, we must be cold people. And please forgive us of our coldness. Please melt our hearts to love you. 
help us to understand and, and, and the order and the way and the inflections of your voice of what you meant when you said, if you love me, you will obey me. Help us to understand you meant that first part, that as we start to love you more, obedience comes natural. We want to obey the people we love. We want to obey the sovereign creator who loves us. And we love you. Father, as we think about our time together in this meal, in this potluck, we ask for a blessing upon those who have prepared the food, a blessing to our conversation around the table. Help us to enjoy our time in communion with you and with with one another. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.